is taken from 1 Samuel, chapter 15, and we'll start reading from page 285 in your Bibles. Okay? Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Tulane, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, Go away, leave the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honour and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites, 
Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of the rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me, so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me, so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him in chains, and he thought, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul until the day Samuel died. He did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Please keep your Bibles open. Thank you, Verona. Uh, a really, really helpful reading. Now, I think our children are going to head off around the corner to see what they make of that. Uh, so, uh, it's a hot day, Paul. I wonder, actually, if you could keep that door open, let some breeze out. Um, uh, we only needed that door shut for the purposes of the little all-age slot. Uh, the windows, yes. They make a they make a big noise if I do. But um, we'll stick with what we've got. Hopefully, with uh, instead of Paul, I thought perfectly done there. Uh, one door open, one door. Uh, I'll see you. So forget the heat, and because we've got a slight little problem with the electrics. Uh, I wonder if I could ask you just to work extra hard and concentrate, listen, uh, help me out by uh, uh, doing that extra bit of concentrating, if you wouldn't mind.
because it's a tough passage. But I want to say um, at the very beginning, ask you a very random uh, question. You might think this has got nothing to do with the Bible, but I'll ask it anyhow. And the question is this. Is democracy a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, it's a good thing. It's a bloodless way to change leaders when they uh, go wrong. But it also encourages decisions that are publicly popular. And 1 Samuel chapter 15 shows us there's a problem, Houston, if you're setting out to please the crowd. And I'll come back to that and uh, uh, draw a conclusion from that uh, later. It's a chapter in uh, uh, this uh, uh, story that really applies to things that happened 3,000 years ago, but have incredible uh, modern sequence uh, 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 significance today. And it's that time of uh, the Bible where Israel get its first king, and that first king, his name is Saul, is given an extraordinary instruction to go and kill every living Amalekite. Now, I'm going to try and uh, cope with that uh, and to explain it. But I want to do it with uh, an eye on the future and to stick it under those three words, hell is hell. It's an interesting thing, when you go through the Bible bit by bit like we do in this church, and chapter by chapter, it means that when you get to the hard bits, you can't dodge them. And I know verse 3 sounds very bad. Here we go. Uh, Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. That sounds bad, doesn't it? That's ethnic cleansing, isn't it? How do we justify that? Now look, after this talk, there'll be a time of questions. And it's probably the kind of thing that we need a discussion about rather than just one person preaching above contradiction. But let me stick my neck on the line now and then you can chop it off later. I think I want to say this kind of thing is okay when God does it or commands it. It is never okay when we do it or command it. Now, I know you're really mad at me for saying that so let me explain a bit more. Because there is a little verse in the Bible that is really important for us to get clear in our heads if we're going to think about this helpfully. And the verse is this. It's uh, from Genesis chapter 18 verse 25. 
far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. This is Abraham speaking to God. Far be it from you to be like that. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? So there's the first thing. This is judgment. It's worth knowing that there's been a long history of hatred that the Amalekites have had for God's people. They were the first to attack them when they were very vulnerable, just coming out of Egypt. And when they fought them, they fought dirty. So that if you just turn back a few pages to Deuteronomy chapter 25, it's worth doing that just to have a look. And it's on page 202. Deuteronomy chapter 25. And I'm going to read verses 17 to 19. Page 203, top left. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. Well, 1 Samuel chapter 15 is blotting out time for what they did to the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. Now, we might say, hold on a minute. These guys that saw are blotting out come 300 years later than the people who attacked the Israelites coming out of Egypt. Where's the fairness in that? It's not this lot that did that. But all you've got to do is to look at the track record of dear old King Agag in verse 33, how he made various women childless. And you will immediately understand that things haven't changed. And no king would ever do that kind of thing on his own. He'd have the nation with him. So here's a nation who's been given 300 years change their ways, to repent if you want to use the Bible word but things continue just the same as they ever were and so therefore the blotting out uh, was God's judgment the judge of all the earth will do right, he, I, that means he will judge it would be wrong not to put an end to sin where evil and uh, uh, um, atrocity has been committed and as you read this you know for a start that the Bible isn't giving you a sanitized version of everybody being nice and squeaky clean and doing what is right this is real it really happened the question is how are we going to read it that's what will make the difference if we read it proudly, which is to say, hey, we're better than God, we wouldn't give that kind of instructions if we were God, 
we are much kinder than he is, then you will understand that we are going to have difficulty with these parts of the Bible. But if we read it humbly and say, well, if this passage is telling me that the judge of all the earth will do right, let me try and understand why this might be right. Why actually God might be kinder than I think he is. And let me suggest to you there are two ways in which God is being kind. The first is that he does right um, by punishing in order that we do not ever have to do that ourselves. Now look, he is doing right. Judgment in the Bible is God's television screen for the future. What he did then in the Bible is what he will do in the days to come. Hell is hell. But at the moment it's in the Bible. It hasn't happened to you and me in our real lives. We've got time. And it is the conviction that the judge of all the earth will do right that stops Christians taking the law into their own hands and start acting against those who hurt them now. That is why the Christian response to ISIL or ISIS or IS or whatever the uh, new word is, uh, they are the modern equivalents of the Amalekites. In fact, actually, there are lots of people that are hurting Christians. That's what these Amalekites did. There are lots of ways in which that hatred of God's people is expressed. But what do the Christians do? They don't go back and judge them because God is the judge of the earth who will do right. Instead, therefore, we love them. We pray for those who persecute us. We love our enemies. We beg them to change because we have seen what happens to the Amalekites in the past. And we don't want that for them in the future. The gospel lovingly warns from what happened in the Bible to avoid it happening to those who hear it explained. You see, if we didn't have the Bible, if we didn't have past judgments like this, we'll be stumbling into a future completely unprepared for what's going to hit us. The Bible teaches us God's judgment so we can see it in the future by looking in the past and uh, take uh, steps to uh, uh, seek God's uh, help and safety. But second, in the kindness uh, uh, conversation, remember the Canaanites in verse 6. Saul makes sure that they leave the area because they, unlike the Amalekites, have been kind to God's people in the past because the judge of all the earth does right. He will not punish the righteous and the wicked together. He makes a distinction. The Canaanites need to be taken away in safety. Now, let's make it very clear that the Canaanites, because they were kind to God's people, that doesn't buy them heaven, but it does buy them time. The wise Canaanite would join Israel. It is absolutely clear 
the future is going to be safest with them. But God is just. And you can see that he doesn't punish the wicked with the innocent. There's kindness written here for us to see, even though hell is hell. Come back and ask more questions later. But let me go on to say the second thing, which is that uh, listening is the king. If you read through 1 Samuel chapter 15, the words about listening are everywhere. So in the very first verse, it's what starts the chapter. It's what's behind obedience. And it's what's behind disobedience, because actually that's what Saul did. He listened but he listened to the voice of the people in verse 24, if you have a look. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men and I gave in to them. And it therefore meant that a different kind of listening happened because Samuel then heard, as he listened, the bleating of sheep, which he wasn't expecting to hear in verse 14 because... It showed that Saul hadn't been listening to God. All about listening. Years play a big part in uh, this story. And actually, how seriously we take God very simply comes down to that picture. Do we think that what God says is priceless and worth listening to? Because there are two traps that we would fall into if we didn't think that God's word was uh, uh, to be listened and heard. First, we're going to be listening to others. Uh, Look, forget uh, this idea that uh, we're independent. We don't need to listen to God because I can think for myself. No. The reality is, if I don't listen to God, I will listen somewhere else. I will listen to others. All of us are led by listening. The person who's got insight into themselves that will recognize that. So it was in the Garden of Eden. Uh, It was Adam and Eve listening to Satan. And now his voice is mainly heard through the voice of people. So very interestingly when Jesus told his disciples that he was going to die on a cross, Peter's thinking, well, actually, no one says that that's going to happen to the Messiah. And so he tells Jesus, no, you mustn't think that way. And Jesus turns around and says to him, get behind me, Satan. You are not on God's side, but on men. So listen to man, and you're listening to him. And that's our difficulty. We are not aware of how much we're steered by the voice of others. Now, a big problem, really, is that we're steered, we're affected by essentially switching voices. We listen to others and not to God. And you can see that happening in a very democratic society where what the society says we need to do, like, for example, take gay weddings and uh, be involved in that scene 
is a popular road to go down if you want to follow the crowd. But where it does actually mean that listening to God is um, something that doesn't happen at that point. So we need to be careful how we opt for systems. Now let me tell you that listening to a crowd sometimes is a whole lot better than listening to a tyrannical dictator, which could be the alternative. So, yeah, democracy is what I'm happy to be living in, but I don't want to be living in it blindly. I need to see that actually the system itself has built-in flaws if the crowd is going to be king. I think that's the reason why uh, Samuel takes Saul, how God made him king. If you look at verse 17, he tells, although you were once small in your eyes, didn't you become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. Get it? You've made the crowd your king in verse 24. God made you the king, not the crowd. But the crowd is still the king for Saul right at the end. So, yeah, we saw how at the end of the story he admits that he got it wrong, that uh, he committed sin. But it is interesting, isn't it, in verse 30, that uh, uh, when he goes with Samuel, it's not because he wants forgiveness, it's because he wants dignity in front of his men. If you look at verse 30. Uh, uh, Sorry, if you you, you look at verse... um, Yes, 30. I've sinned, but please honour me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so I may worship the Lord. Well, I'm not going to worship the Lord, but I just want to make sure that the men are impressed with you standing next to me. If we don't listen to God, we will listen to the crowd, ultimately to Satan speaking through it. And the end result is not God denial. You see in verse 20 that Saul is absolutely convinced that he listened to the voice of God. Can you see that? And I love the way that Verona put the emphasis when she read that verse. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. He really thinks that he has done everything that he's been told to do. But what he's done is to substitute burnt offerings for what God said. It's a kind of, you know, we put religion in instead of obedience. It's ultimately to say, oh, surely God will like me for doing this for him. It's very subtle. As Angela said, there's lots of good intentions here. Why, I won't kill these animals now. They're much too good. Why don't I kill them later? Then I can make it part of a sacrifice to God. That'd be good, won't it? And that's the way we do it. We think we'll kind of do better than what God said he wanted us to do. And we do it all the time. But we do it in subtle ways. We don't even realize we're doing it. So Jesus said, for example, go into the world and make disciples, not go into the church and sing hymns. And yet, what happens? That gets subtly changed. So my free time goes into church activity and the singing of hymns and 
practicing in the choir and doing all that. And worship becomes a bigger deal in the life of the church than witness. It's very subtle. And it's very dangerous. Because of the staggering thing you see in verse 23, which is that if we were to go into a place like that, then we are going to essentially be no better off going to a spiritualist house or even to a mosque. That's what verse 23 says. Rebellion is like the sin of divination. That's basically listening to dead people. That's what the spiritualists do. And arrogance is like the evil of idolatry, which is really what Islam is. It takes what the Prophet Muhammad said is a man and treats it as if it's God talking. Because you have rejected the words of the Lord. It is staggering, isn't it, to think that what goes on in church is no different what happens in a spiritualist meeting, what happens in a mosque, if we're not listening carefully to what God says in the Bible. And then lastly, the point is made about God changing his mind. Isn't verse 11 extraordinary? I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. It's there in the very last verse as well. The Lord regretted that he'd made Saul king over Israel. Hold on. Doesn't God know how things are going to pan out? Couldn't he see this coming? Is God admitting that he got it wrong? Making Saul his king? Well, it's hard to imagine that God didn't see it coming when if you remember 1 Samuel chapter 8 that God explained that there would be kings who go off track. Sounds like actually God anticipated this really quite well. But the Bible uses language like this to show us something really attractive about God and that is he is a passionate God who cares for the way people respond to him. In other words, he isn't a detached controller of the universe, uh, moving levers and making things happen. We mustn't think of him as a kind of cold slab of concrete. You can do whatever you want to do and he just shrugs his shoulders. He's not a win-some-lose-some kind of God. It matters to him when people turn away. So he regrets, in verse 11, Samuel cries all night. How is it that a person who has been given so much like Saul could turn away from such an incredible giver? That's a wonderful God, isn't it? I want a passionate God who is involved, so involved in me that my godliness matters to him. Give me a God like that any day than the God who says, well, if you don't make the grade, I don't really care. But he does raise into question this whole um, thorny issue of once saved, always saved? 
that God chose Saul, then rejected him. Obviously, oh, that's in the Old Testament. Everything's different now. Well, is it? Look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 10 and verse 11. And uh, that is on page 1151. Page 1151. And Paul is describing here how God brought a large group of people out of Egypt where they were slaves and promised them a new country and yet most of them didn't make it. Or others did. But of the original party, only three. And we say, well, that's Old Testament. It's all different now. Look at chapter 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. We no difference. And we need to understand that if other people drop out, well, it's uh, something we need to be aware of for ourselves. As a sense, we need to learn from this truth about God changing his mind. It shows that he is passionate, but it also shows us something else. This might blow your mind, but have a look at chapter 15, verse 29. And you'd be interested to read that he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. For he's not a human being that he should change his mind. You can use the change of mind thing to describe how God cares, but you can't use that ultimate to describe how God is. Because you notice that the arrow is the same as before. God has chosen someone else. There's going to be another king in verse 28. We'll meet him next week, actually. And he'll be someone who in turn will point us to the real king that's coming that God had in mind all along, which is Jesus. So don't worry, the story will march on on plan A to the elevation of God's king, his son. That script has been written. There won't be changes. God isn't a man to need a rethink. But the point is this that if God gave such huge advantages to Saul, even made him a king, hasn't he given us even bigger advantages through Jesus his son? Hasn't he adopted us into his family? Hasn't he loved us with the same love that he loved Jesus? Hasn't he got that same future in mind for us? What privileges we've been given that Saul never had. What a tragedy, therefore, it would be if God was to think for a moment that he regretted the decision to make you a believer because you've lost delight in listening to him. That's what Saul did and was rejected. So, three quick lessons uh, and then we'll stop. Thank you for concentrating so hard on a hot day. But here's the first one. If you are new off the estate, can I ask you how seriously... Are you willing to take help? 
My guess is you won't take it seriously if you think that it shows us the worst uh, angle on God. And so what people do is to go into denial, go for the loving God, just deny hell. It's not going to happen. Or we might make hell less hell. So Roman Catholic Church uh, talks about purgatory, where you go there and you kind of work up the ladder from there to get into heaven. Hell isn't really fully hell. Or you might just want to sort of uh, shorten hell. It's bad for a bit and then you kind of lose awareness of what happens. Now, hell is hell. But I want to suggest to you that it's right to think of hell and the mention of hell as a kindness of God to us today. Because at this stage of our lives, it is only in the Bible. But Bible history is God's television screen for the future. And therefore, speak to him. Talk to him. Thank him for revealing the truth about hell to you. Ask him to save you from it. Get talking to him. And get talking to us so we can keep prodding you to listen to him and to see his word as kindness to you. Okay? Secondly, if you're churchy, put some thought into how easy it is for us to do more or less obedience and to be happy with that. We can say, hey, uh, I've committed murder, I go to church. What more can God want? I'm all right. Can you see our danger? Our danger is this, that actually uh, we believe that God will like what I think he will like rather than listen to what he has told me he'll like. Okay? That's the danger for church-going people. I think God will like what I think he'll like rather than listen carefully to what he tells me he'll like. That's why I think it's a real blessing for us as we go around the doors on our estate to meet people who've had no church links at all because it means that when we get a conversation we don't have somebody with these things, this way of thinking, deeply ingrained. But seriously, to go to a church where the God of the Bible isn't listened to in a careful and thoughtful way, which is why, yeah, no apologies, we have to think when we come to this church. Pick up the Bible and put the, uh, wrap the, the cold tar around our head to get some thinking done. We have to do that because if we don't think about what God says and listen to him carefully... Coming here will do you no better than going to a spiritualist meeting or even a mosque. That's the frightening thing that I've picked up as well from this passage. But thirdly, if you are a genuine believer, should it rattle us that God might change his mind about the people he has chosen? Now, I want to suggest that actually what he should do 
is to humble us. In other words, it should stop me, this story should stop me trusting in myself. And Hebrews chapter um, uh, 33, uh, verse 13, is a big help. This is the last thing I want you to have a look at. Uh, there's a Bible, I wonder if uh, Anne, you could pass the Bible to the lady behind at the back. Uh, oh, there's one at the front there. Um, and I'll tell you the page number when I get there. Okay, it is on page 1203. 1203, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse... I'm going to read verse 12 and verse 13. Page 1203. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Interesting, isn't it? He's talking to Christians and he's talking about the possibility of Christians having a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away. Okay. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Again, you see, Christians can be hardened by being deceived. Now, that is something that is really important for us to understand. I'm better off, spiritually healthy, if I realise I'm just a whisker from falling away. That's the point at which I begin to see that uh, I can't trust myself. And when I live in that understanding of myself, that I am vulnerable, I can drop off uh, the radar at any time, that's the point at which I will start clinging to God in a very real way. That's the point at which I will start loving what he did for me on the cross and keep seeking his forgiveness there. That is the wonderful thing that... uh, Uh, we find uh, when we take uh, God seriously and ourselves um, uh, less trustworthy. I used to start off, uh, I want to go through, I wanted to start every day by talking to God and saying, uh, our Heavenly Father, thank you for letting your Son die for me on the cross. I wanted to make that my first conversation every morning. Now I've changed that. Now the first thing I say to God every morning is, Father, I am a fool. I'm so prone to get things wrong at the drop of a hat. But I thank you that your son died for me and that he loves even fools. Please would you forgive my foolishness and help me by your Holy Spirit to listen to you so that I might live more like him. And I mean the Lord Jesus when I pray that. In other words, take it as a given that you're like Saul, 
because that is what will help you to really cling closely to the cross and that is what will give you massive incentive to listen to him rather than think that you know how to please God and are disobedient in the process well let's just stop there I'll take questions but let me pray and then uh, we'll um, uh, stay over to you Father in heaven our capacity to be idiots has no limits we think hell is cruel and we miss your kindness to us in speaking to us about it we think you are impressed when we're impressed by our godliness. We take your control and care for us for granted and we're not careful to listen to what you say. By your Holy Spirit, give us increasing insight into our stupidity so that we may increasingly cling to the sacrifice of your Son that was made for fools like us and help us to live to listen to him so that we might be changed into his likeness and be wise. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Guys, it's a hot day and uh, it's uh, a controversial passage but let's... Uh, ask you what struck you in that and where did I go wrong in understanding uh, what I did yeah